Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. We hope you enjoy today's message. John chapter 3, John chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. John 3, 1 through 8, if you have a Bible. John 3, 1 through, 1 through 8. And so I'll, I'll, I'll begin reading. If you're there in John 3, verses 1 through 8, it says this. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to him at night, him referring to Jesus, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these, these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, I want you to highlight that if you're a note taker, make a note in your phone, make a mental note, do something with it in your phone, or if you're writing with a a pen or something, I want you to highlight born again. This is important. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responds, because he's perplexed, he, he doesn't really understand. He says, how can anyone be born when he is old? That's a legitimate question on the surface. Nicodemus asked him, can, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Once again, a legitimate question on the surface. But Jesus is not impressed. Jesus answered and said, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Here's what Jesus said, Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Let us pray. Gracious God, we just want to come today and honor you and thank you, Father, that we have this amazing privilege and opportunity to give you worship. And so today, God, I pray that by your Spirit that you breathe life into your people, God, that you would open our eyes today, open our hearts today, God, that you would change us, transform us, that you would work on the inside of us, God. And so, Father, today I just pray by the Spirit's power that there are distractions, that there are worries, anxieties, cares that we have. Um, I pray, God, that you would allow us in these moments, Father, to focus on you, God. I pray that you would silence the noise, the background noise of our lives. And so, Father, as we spend these next few moments together, I pray that you would do something powerful in our midst. I pray, God, that we, we will be transformed right, right in front of each other, God, that, there, that we will be made new, that you would wash over us, make us clean, make us whole, make us new, God. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that, that Christ Jesus would be, uh, would be glorified before your people. I pray that we would see Jesus in a whole new way, God, and feel compelled to surrender our lives to him. And so, Father, I pray that we are not just hearers of the word, but that we are participators, that we, we ultimately participate in the preaching of God's word. And ultimately, ultimately, God, we pray that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers of the word of God. 
And so, Father, I thank you today, God. I, I praise you today, Father. I thank you that you're going you're gonna to do what no one else can do, God. You're going to change us today. And we give you all glory. We give you all honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated. My sermon title is Conversations with God from Curious to Committed. Conversations with God from Curious to Committed. There's a gentleman in the church who had been talking to me for quite some time. Um, I didn't start this conversation. He did. But he began approaching me for some time about going to the gym to work out. He claimed, notice I said claimed, he claimed that he had the ability to transform my appearance, my appearance, but I had to go to the gym with him. His gym where he does his work, where he does his working out, this gym is kind of like a kingdom of sorts because this gym is almost on every corner. There's a new one popping up everywhere. Um, he, he has access to this gym, though, and he'd been trying to get me to come, and I won't go, and I didn't go because I didn't have a membership to this gym because every time he asked me, I told him, that's not in my budget. I, I, I'm on a Planet Fitness budget, um, and so therefore, I, I can't come to your gym. I actually can't afford to, and since I don't have a membership, I don't have access to come to your gym, and so I, I was satisfied and content with working out on my own. If, if, if push-ups can't get it done, then it won't get done. So I, I'm satisfied with the, way I, with, with the way I look. And so, but I knew deep down inside, if I was going to experience some sort of real transformation, that I, I had to be a part of this gym. I had to go. But at that juncture, I had to go with the person who had access. I got to go with the dude who has access because if I don't have a membership and if I don't have access, then I can't get in. So I needed him to allow me the access to get in. I can't enter into this kingdom of sorts unless I have access. And he was the guy that had the access. So I had to go with him. And so after listening a few times, I decided to give it a try. Now, this is where the story takes an interesting turn. I decided I'll try it, but I'll go on my own terms. I'll meet you at the gym whenever I'm ready, but he insisted that instead of me meeting him at the gym, he would actually come to me. That meant he would come to my house and actually get me where I was. And so I had other plans, but he decided he would come and get me. And part of the reason that I wanted to meet him because I wanted to keep this thing private. I wanted to go on my own terms, do it at my own pace and at my own speed, uh, because if he came to get me, then people would actually see him coming to get me. Now, you're thinking, what's wrong with somebody seeing him come to get you? It's a lot wrong with that because I didn't tell you that this guy is a police officer. And I knew something in my spirit told me that if he came in my neighborhood, he wasn't just going to come and drive his regular vehicle. Lo and behold, he shows up in my neighborhood to come and get me, and he drives up in his squad car. Now, there's some problems there because there's some implications. I live in a neighborhood, and shall I say I'm the only person that's like me that's in my neighborhood, at least on my street. I'll let you interpret those tongues on your own. So here he is. He doesn't pull up in my driveway or ask the access to the garage. He parks in the middle of the street. I think he even honked his horn. I was like, come on, man. 
So I'm panicking in the house. I'm like, oh, this is, this is not good. What are the neighbors going to think about me? I just got here. I haven't lived that long. They're going to think that they're next to a common criminal. And I says, oh, so I text him. I like, hey, how about this? How about you come in? And then as he's walking up to the door in his uniform, looked like he had on a SWAT uniform of sorts, I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to think that he's coming in to get me out of the house. So instead of me walking out on my own and getting into the car and whisking away out of the neighborhood, he comes up to my door in full uniform, comes to my house, and he walks out before me. I'm walking behind him like it's a perp walk. And I'm like, God help me. Like, this is not, I wanted to get the gym. I want the gym thing. I want the transformation. But I want to do this in secrecy. I don't want people to see me. I want the life change, but I don't want to do it publicly. I want to do it in secret so people don't see me. I wanted access to life change, but I wanted it in secret. And this is what is happening in our text today. A man who comes to Jesus in secret to inquire about him to figure out who Jesus is. And so for all intents and purposes today, we're going to look at four things. We're going to discover four things in our text today. Number one, we're going to discover who is Jesus. Number one, we're going to discover who is Jesus. Number two, we're going to discover how we approach Jesus. Number three, we're going to figure out how to have a relationship with Jesus. And number four, we're going to understand the implications of a relationship with Jesus. So let me say that again. Number one, we're going to learn who is Jesus. Number two, how we approach Jesus. Number three, how to have a relationship with Jesus. And number four, the implications of a relationship with Jesus. You see, when Jesus came on the scene, many people had different perspectives on who he was. And I mean, a man that did miracles and signs like Jesus did, obviously he was not just some ordinary man. But not only the signs, when we read the Gospels and people talk about the way Jesus taught and preached, they often said he preaches like someone who has authority. So people are amazed at Jesus. And when Jesus comes on the scene, just like John the Baptist, he preaches a message of the kingdom. Jesus' message, just like John the Baptist's messages, were repent, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. And so Jesus is saying this because he's trying to get them to see something. He's trying to reveal to them who he is. Jesus is saying to them, repent, the kingdom, the kingdom is at hand. Because the kingdom is no longer just future, the kingdom is also present. Jesus is actually saying to them, I have come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. I have come to set everything in motion that you have been anticipating for centuries. The miracles are a sign that the kingdom is here and the kingdom has come with the king. And so I have come to seek and save that which is lost. And the culmination of my kingdom is going to result in a crucifixion and a subsequent resurrection from the dead. He's saying, I am here. And once I culminate this thing, I'm going to ascend back into heaven. And at some point, I'm going to come back to judge the living and the dead, eradicate sin completely, usher in a new heavens and a new earth and make everything right once and for all. And in the meantime, in the meantime, and in between time, I have been given all authority on earth and in heaven. And I'm giving that authority to my people. And my people are going to follow the kingdom way because they're going to do the great commission and expand the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom is not just future. The kingdom is present and the kingdom is growing. That is what Jesus is trying to tell him when he says repent because the kingdom is hand. Prepare, make way. The kingdom is here now. This is what Jesus is saying. Maybe the unbeliever would say, well, that's cool and all, 
but I can't see him. Therefore, I can't concede with the fact that he is reigning presently. I I can't see him. And then to that, I would say you never met nor saw Joe Biden before either, but you have no problem calling him president. Same with Jesus. And for many of the religious leaders during the time of Jesus' ministry, oftentimes they were at odds with Jesus and who he claimed to be. And here we have one of a few examples of a conversation that is recorded that Jesus would have with many would-be disciples. And this conversation in particular comes right after Jesus has come to Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Many people believed in his name, although for some it was not real and genuine belief. It wasn't real, genuine belief that resulted in trusting Jesus with their lives. And Jesus was not fooled in the least bit by some of the people who said that they believed in him or believed in his name. He's not fooled at all. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is omniscient. He can see right through people. And so for context purposes, at the end of chapter 2, before we get to the beginning of chapter 3 where we are today, it tells us that because of the signs that Jesus was doing, he, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, for he himself knew what was in man. It says Jesus knew what was in man. And then right when we get to chapter 3 and we look at this religious ruler today, the first thing the text says in chapter 3 is that there is a man. There is a man that cannot deny that there is something different about Jesus. but He's just not ready yet to concede that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. This gentleman's name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. He comes from an elite religious sect of people, men who were devoted to the study of the Scriptures. They, they knew the law of God front and back. They, they were well-versed experts of the law. Matter of fact, they, they were high-character men who were zealous to obey God's law. They, they lived to keep the law of God. They they were well-respected leaders in the Jewish community. It says that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a part of this governing body called the Sanhedrin. I I want you to give, for for illustration's sake, I want you to imagine the, the Supreme Court and the Senate combined in one, he would have been the leader of both of those. He's a a highly regarded man, but he's not just a highly regarded political figure. He's also a highly regarded moral figure. He's a morally good person. He's morally, he's scholarly, he's political. He, He would have been an upstanding person who did the right thing at all times. And we all know people like this, people who we know. There are people in our lives who we've met, people in our families, people we work with, who we know don't cheat, who don't steal, who love their families, who are hardworking people, who serve people in general, that, that, that we would actually feel pretty safe if we were around them. But here's the caveat. They're good moral people. They're just not down with the Jesus stuff. Now, now, these are good people. They're not the people who we think about. We think about people who are in opposition to God. We think typically people who are hostile to God. But Nicodemus is not hostile to God. He's one of those people who's kind of just neutral to God. He, he, he's not down with the Jesus stuff, but he's not hostile to it either. Matter of fact, I would say he's interested. Maybe he's the type of person that will go to church on holidays or on Easter, Christmas, New Year's, funerals, weddings. 
We all know people like that who, who's not hostile to God, but they're not actively pursuing him either. They're curious about God. And this is who Nicodemus represents, the seeker, the curious but uncommitted. Nicodemus represents the curious but uncommitted. Nicodemus comes comes to Jesus at a very specific time. It says he comes to Jesus at night, and if you're just reading your Bible casually, it means nothing to you. He comes at night, he comes at day. What difference does it make? But Nicodemus comes at night. Some believe he comes at night because that's the time when the rabbis would study. They would work during the day, stay up late at night to study. But no, that's not actually why Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. He's not coming to him at night. The consensus is, is Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night because he wants to come in secret. He doesn't want the people who he's around during the daytime to know that he's actively pursuing a relationship with Jesus, or at least that he's curious about it. And so for a man of his caliber to be caught in public with a new teacher who is doing new things in the most unorthodox way and claiming to be God, that would make Nicodemus look kind of crazy. And so Nicodemus can't come to Jesus regularly in the daytime and be public about it. He wants to come to Jesus and figure out this Jesus thing uh, in secret, in the dark. He's still concerned about what those closest to him might say about him. He fears what he may lose if it becomes public about his pursuit with Jesus. Here's my practical point for all intents and purposes. I think this is so relevant because there are people who sit in churches today who want to pursue Jesus, but they want to pursue, they want a private pursuit with a public God. They want a private pursuit with a public God. But if we know the Scriptures, Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. We we cannot try to pursue Jesus and still have a desire to anonymity with other select groups of people in our lives because we fear being considered uncool or old-fashioned or archaic in our thinking. We can't have both. Nicodemus is coming in secret because he's unsure about Jesus, but some of us claim to be sure about Jesus, but we're bold in church but reticent in public. And this is what we're addressing today. He comes at night because he's trying to do it under the veil of secrecy. But more than secrecy, there's a spiritual component to him coming to Jesus at night. The spiritual component to him coming to Jesus at night is that if you know the Bible, darkness or nighttime is synonymous or representative of darkness. And darkness is typically represented with sin or people who are part from God. So for him to come at night in the darkness literally symbolizes that he's walking in darkness in his day-to-day life. He is spiritually dead. And what we see sometimes, we see people that are physically alive, but are spiritually dead men walking. And this is what Nicodemus is at this point in juncture. And because Nicodemus is walking in darkness and can't completely perceive who Jesus is, He addresses Jesus as teacher. Look at verse 2. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know we. I thought it was just Nicodemus talking. He says we. It's kind of like when people come to you and they say, everybody's saying it. You're like, who is everybody? And then I have to ask the question, is everybody you? But it says, we know that you come from God. For no one could perform perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Get it? God with him? God with us? 
Notice he calls him teacher. He's being extremely respectful to Jesus. But the problem is, is Nicodemus is a teacher himself. And he's putting himself on par with Jesus. Notice he doesn't call him Savior. Notice he doesn't call him the Son of God. He doesn't call him Messiah. And he definitely doesn't call him the King of Israel. All names that Jesus at this juncture has been recognized as by some. But Nicodemus doesn't take it that far. He just says, I know that you're a teacher. I can kind of figure that you come from God and God is with you. Um, but I'm still trying to figure this thing out. And so what we realize is Nicodemus has seen some miracles because this story in John chapter 2 is sandwiched between the first Two, the first two of the first signs in the book of John, Jesus performs a second sign where he, he heals a royal official son. But the first sign is the often famous miracle where Jesus turns water into wine. It comes on the heel of Jesus turning water into wine. So Nicodemus is curious. Jesus turned water into wine. He says, okay, I know dude is from God. And for some of us in the room, if we saw Jesus turn water into wine, we were like, that's it for me. I'm good. I know he's God. My only thing is, do it again. If some of us saw Jesus turn water into wine, all we would say is, say less. Say less. But Nicodemus is not quite yet convinced and therefore, he approaches him not as God, but as a teacher, but that matters. How we approach God matters because Jesus is more than just a teacher. Jesus is more than just a prophet. Jesus is more than just some wise old historical sage. Jesus is more than just some random miracle worker. The miracles actually point to something greater. Je Jesus is more than just a guy that did some cool stuff. He's more than just a historical figure that, can't, that people can't stop talking about. He's more than just some superhero character. He is God in the flesh. He is the God-man that defeated sin and death. He is the living Savior that was crucified on the cross for the sins of humanity that died in the place of sinners. The God who raised who was raised to life from the grave. He is the God who reigns from heaven, who sits on the throne. He is God, and besides him, there is no other. He is more than a teacher. He is God. And if he's more than a teacher, then you must approach him as such. Why does that matter? Because when we understand that our approach is no longer neutral, it's no longer casual, it's no longer indifferent, it's no longer I'll ignore him and maybe he'll go away and I won't have to deal with him if I pretend he doesn't exist. If you recognize that he is who he says he is, then the only response is worship. The only response is worship. And here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is that if we put our trust in Jesus, he's more than just God. He's more than just our Savior. He's our, he's our Father. He becomes our Father. And the problem at this point for Nicodemus and those like him that are curious about God but not committed is that they can't perceive God rightly. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, not just because he doesn't want to be found out, but, but, but he doesn't even know that he's literally a moral, upstanding person walking in darkness. We all know people like this who are good, genuine people who love their families and take care of their families and serve their community and go to their jobs, and they are moral, upstanding people at their jobs. They work hard every day. They pay their bills. They're they an asset to society, but they're just not walking with God. And this is who Nicodemus is, even though he has seen the miracles. If you ever ask yourself the question, how in the world do people open their eyes and see God's creation are still convinced that he does not exist? How is that even possible? We were sitting around the table yesterday after the axe throwing championships. 
and some of the guys at the table, and they're talking about going to Colorado. And I'm like, man, I'm not going to Colorado. I was born in Florida. I plan on dying in Florida. They're like, man, you got to see it because even though it's cold, you can appreciate God's beautiful design and his creation. And I'm like, that's really cool. I believe you. Every time I'm on the internet and I see Colorado, I'm like, this is so beautiful. I really believe it. But I, I, I'm convinced by the, by the palm trees blowing in the wind in South Florida. I'm, I'm convinced by the ocean and the waves on the beach in the warm 75-degree weather, even in December. I, I'm, I'm convinced by God. It makes me want to praise him and worship him. Every time I'm in South Florida, every time I walk outside and I see the clear sun, I praise him. I don't need to go to Colorado. I'm convinced. But how can people see God's vast creation? Or how can they see the evidence about Jesus and historical accounts of his resurrection? The hundreds of people who saw him, the eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts, and still deny him the sacred text that we have that records the life and times of Christ and those that were willing to die for what they saw and experienced. If a person didn't truly believe that Jesus, who he said he was, they would have stopped writing about it. If they knew that if it would cost them their life, they would have known the jig is up. We got to stop this nonsense. But they kept going even in the face of death. How do we, how do they deny that? How, or, or how can a person, how, how can people reject the free gift of God's gracious salvation? If, if you can't even accept the evidence, how do you reject the free gift of salvation? I'll tell you how. I think the Apostle Paul opens our eyes here, literally. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, here's what the Apostle says. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, hear this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the answer. But I love the way Dr. Eugene Peterson breaks it down. This is his summary of verses 3 through 4 in the Message Bible. Look at what he says. Here's Dr. Eugene Peterson's version. He says, if our message is obscure to anyone, it's not because we're holding back in any way. No, it's because these other people are looking or going in the wrong way and refuse to give it serious attention. All they have eyes for is the fashionable God of darkness. They think they can give them, they think it can give them what they want, and they think they won't have to bother believing a truth that they can't see. They're stone blind to the day spring brightness of the message that shines with Christ Hear this, who gives us the best picture of God we will ever see. That's amazing. Here's what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 to drive this point home for us. And I think it's so pertinent to the text today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 says this. But people who aren't spiritual can't can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who can, who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things for we have the mind of Christ. This is why we can perceive and those who we love still can't see it because sin is blinding. This was everyone's status. Every believer walked in this way at some point in time, but except for the mercy and grace of God, he opened our eyes. 
Thank God for his mercy and for his grace. And so we see people walking in darkness. We don't shake our heads and wag our fingers at them and say, woe is them. How is it that they can't see it? No. What do we do? We pray and we keep on preaching. We pray and we keep preaching. It is never too late for the curious to at some point become committed. We pray that God would open their eyes so that they can see the kingdom. And Jesus, here in the text today, prescribes for us what must happen in order for people who cannot see to become people who can actually see. And here's what we look at, our third point, how we can have a relationship with Jesus. Look at verses 3 through 7. It says this, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus responds and says this, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I've told you, you must be born again. He literally says you cannot see the kingdom or you cannot enter the kingdom. You can't experience it, you can't understand it, you can't uh, get all of its benefits and privileges unless you are born again. Here's what Jesus is doing to this amazing leader who is Nicodemus. Jesus outright rejects Nicodemus's assertion that he is right in what he's observing that Jesus comes from God. Because unless you truly see Jesus for who he is as God, then you don't see him at all. Even if you recognize him as a good teacher, even if you recognize him as some moral figure, who, moral figure who has some cool stuff to say, and maybe you want to take bits and pieces of the Bible and add them to the smorgasbord of the spirituality that you made up, you still don't see him for who he is. Therefore, you don't see him at all. Nicodemus had a preconserved idea that the kingdom was future and that if anybody was going to get into the kingdom, it was me. This is what he's thinking. I'm a Jew by birth, so I'm in automatically. I get in. Nicodemus must have been floored for Jesus to say to him that it doesn't even matter that you are ruler of the Jews. It doesn't even matter that you are a law-abiding citizen. It doesn't even matter that you got 47 college degrees. It doesn't even matter that you live in a gated community. It doesn't matter that you make six figures or close to it. It doesn't matter that you are a business owner. It doesn't matter if you are a recent college graduate. It doesn't matter that you grew up in church. Doesn't matter that you sing on a praise team. Doesn't matter that you work as a part of hospitality. Doesn't matter that you pay your tithes every week. That doesn't get you into heaven. Doesn't matter that you keep the law. Doesn't matter that you're a person of authority. Doesn't matter that you have means and resources. Doesn't matter that you're even somewhat open to me. None of those qualities can save you is what Jesus is saying. It's not good enough to get you into heaven. The flesh is inadequate to produce what is necessary for the kingdom. And in one sentence, Jesus literally tears down everything that Nicodemus stands for and tells him nothing matters. You must be remade again by God's Spirit. It, it doesn't matter that you're an Israelite by birth. It doesn't matter that your grandmother came to church. It doesn't matter that you were baptized as a little baby and then ran roughshod over society. Doesn't matter. He says you must be born again. Being born again is this idea, this, uh, this theological word that we uh, call regeneration. 
when God literally makes the spiritually dead alive, it's the new birth. We, we can't even respond. You can't even respond to God in faith unless he makes you alive first. God makes us alive. We respond after God has made us alive. God enables us to respond to him in faith. God gives you the faith that you have as a gift. I know that's offensive to you because you want to have something to do with it. But we are born again by God's Spirit, and it opens our minds to understand the things of God, and then eventually it moves us into discipleship to be followers of Jesus. Unless you are born again, you have no desire for God or the things of God until that new birth happens in your life. A dead person can't have desires. So how is it that you automatically one day just discovered God on your own? No, God had to make you alive first. According to the Scriptures, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Dead people don't have desires. Unless God first makes them alive. And when God makes us alive, this is not just adding a little bit of Jesus to what we already are. This is not making some little slight adjustments to our lives. It's not turning over a new leaf. God is not interested in putting lipstick on a pig. He doesn't want you to play dress-up Christianity. This is radical transformation, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. I love the way theologian J.C. Rowell describes it. He says it is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a new creation. It is passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. And so he asks a general, legitimate Question, although it's sarcastic and it's disbelieving and it's kind of retort to what Jesus says about being born again, Nicodemus says, how can I be born again if I'm already old? I'm too big and grown to go back where I came from. How do I enter my mother's womb a second time? He's genuinely confused. And Jesus tells him, unless you're born of water and spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God because whatever is born of flesh is flesh, meaning if you were born and shaped in iniquity, born and shaped in sin, then that's what it produces. But you must be born again, born of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. Born of water and the Spirit is two sides of the same coin, meaning that God cleanses us from sin like water, giving us a new stand, right standing with God. It transforms our hearts by God's Spirit and gives us the, the desire to obey God's will. Actually, Nicodemus would have understood this if he was really a teacher of the law, but he's spiritually blind. This is what the prophets prophesied to the people of God in Ezekiel. Look at what Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says. This is the reference text that Jesus is using. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is what he says to wicked, idolatrous Israel that has walked away from him. He says, my name is to be honored, and so therefore I'm going to do a new thing in you so that you don't dishonor me. I'm going to wash you and make you new. I'm going to transform your, your hearts. I'm going to clean away your impurities. I'm going to give you an undivided loyalty to me by my spirit. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, one that can respond, one that is alive, because right now the way you are, your heart is dead, and you can't respond to me. And God gives them a new heart. And this is why he tells them, don't be amazed. But here's the interesting thing that we need to know. God said he would do this. He didn't tell Nicodemus to do it on his own. God initiates this. This is the gift of God's grace. 
this is not something we do on our own. This is the sovereign work of God. Titus 3 and 5 tells us he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to God's mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not a decision that you make to trust in Christ first. It's, that's the cause. That's, the, that's not the cause. It's the effect. The cause is that God renewed you with his spirit. The effect is that you responded to God. Because if it was up to you, you would take credit for your own salvation. That's how we are. We want to take credit for it. I was mad at the dude that was a hater yesterday that tore up the sheets that destroyed the proof that was going to allow me to brag about my victories. I wanted to take credit for it, but he ripped it up. That's the same thing that God does with our credentials. He rips them up so we can only give him credit. And if you are saved, and if you are in Christ, this is good news for you because it means that you are the object of his love, his grace, and his mercy. That's enough reason for you to worship. That's enough reason for you to shout unto the Lord. That's enough reason for you to give him praise, honor, and glory, not just in church, but every day of your life. God, thank you for your grace. I read to you this last quote as I'm closing. Famous theologian R.C. Sproul said this, beautiful. He said, if you have a heart, if you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God, the Holy Spirit, in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace, has been to the cemetery of your soul and raised you from the dead. No matter how good we think we are, no matter what our credentials are or the things we've accumulated, if a person is going to enter into the kingdom of God, they must be born again. But it is the supernatural work of God and God alone. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus says, no one knows the, fa- no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Who the Son chooses to reveal Him. The question not is, why isn't He choosing everybody? The question is, why did He choose me? The crazy thing is if you survey 1,000 people and you ask them, did you have anything to do with your natural birth? 1,000 people would respond and say emphatically, absolutely not. But if you ask them if they had anything to do with their spiritual birth, those numbers would be skewed. But if you had nothing to do with your natural birth, Surely you had absolutely nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It is the work of God and God alone. My fourth and final point, and I'm out of here. Verse 8 says, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. 
unless you're this young lady in the church who's an environmental scientist and she can tell you where the wind's blowing and where it's coming from. <laughs> Bless her heart. But for the rest of us C students, <laughs> we have no clue. We cannot see the new birth happen. No more than we can tell somebody where the wind is blowing. But you know what we do know? We do know the wind is blowing. How do we know? Because we can see its effects. When I see those beautiful Florida palm trees blowing everywhere, that's the wind blowing. I don't know which direction it's coming from, but I know it's blowing. And he's saying the same thing. If you have been birthed by God's Spirit, they may not know where it comes from, but they sure can see the effects of it. That there is evidence when we have been born by God's Spirit. There is evidence of it. There are things that people can see. They don't know where it's coming from. They don't know how it's happening, but they know something is happening. And this is the same thing that should happen to us. If we are blood-washed, bought believers of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is an effect. There is evidence in our faith. People should be able to see something. If we've been born of the Spirit, then we would show forth the Spirit's character. We would have faith and trust in him. We would repent daily. We would love God and love his people. We would have a desire to pray and study God's word. And people would be able to see the fruit of the Spirit coming to bear in our lives each and every day. There would be a new life. My question for all of us today is do we have those evidences? Do we have evidence that we have been born of God's Spirit? Because if we've been born of the Spirit, He continues to work in our lives each and every day. We don't get stuck. We continue to grow and transform. Because the Spirit, our experience with the Spirit, although it guarantees us, it holds us firm until the day of Christ Jesus, it still is working in our hearts to transform us and make us more like Jesus. It is a lifelong process of personal growth and God's glory in our lives. And my question for you today is, is the wind blowing? Is the wind blowing? And if the answer to that question is yes, ask for more wind. If your response is no I don't think people can see the wind blowing, the evidences of God's Spirit in my life. I got good news for you too. The good news is that God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, did not stay where he was. But he came right where we were and parked his presence in the middle of our street. It is undeniable, but he came and became flesh. And because we were born of flesh, we had all this sin, he came and took on that sin. He that knew no sin became sin for us. He became sin and died for us so that we might live for him. And today, if you don't see the wind of God, Maybe it's because you need to be born again by God's Spirit. And this is what God has come to do in our lives. How does that happen? 
Number one, if you've heard this message today and you're an unbeliever, you're not walking with Jesus, and you've heard this message and something inside of you says, I need God. That's not you recognizing that you need God. That's the Holy Spirit allowing you to see that you need God. And your only response is to worship. To turn from your sin. We call that repentance. To turn from sin, but not just return from, turn from sin and leave it there, but turn from sin and turn to Christ. Not just to believe in Him, but to trust Him. To trust Him with your salvation. To trust Him with your life. To recognize that my degrees, my smarts, my wit, my intellect, my family, my lineage, it can't get it done for me. But Christ has come to do the work for me. And the work is done and it is finished. He got out of the grave, so I can too. And this is what is put before Nicodemus today. Nicodemus' story doesn't end here. And your story doesn't have to end here either. There is life in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.